Welcome to Detroit Opera's Opera Here podcast. This is Andrea Scobie and Arthur White with Detroit Opera. We are thrilled you have joined us today as we take a look at the opera Faust by Charles Gounod. This production marks the sixth time Detroit Opera has mounted Faust in its 51-year history, uh, and today will include music and dialogue not presented in any of the previous productions. Now, in addition to speaking about what we will be seeing and hearing in this new production, we'll be in conversation with baritone Babatunde Akim Boboye, who will take up the role of Valentin, marking his debut with the company in Faust, which opens November 12th and runs till November 20th at the Detroit Opera House. Gounod's Faust is an opera in five acts, which premiered in Paris in 1859. It is based on a libretto by Jules Barbier and Michel Carré, their play Faust and Marguerite, which in turn was loosely based on Goethe's Faust Part One. Now, the original version of Faust employed spoken dialogue, uh, this along with restored music unheard of for nearly 150 years, uh, such as the Marguerite and Valentin farewell duet, make up this production that we will see on the stage at the Detroit Opera House. Faust is one of the most familiar operas in the operatic canon, and its adaptation helped to make it one of the most important literary works to come out of the 19th century. For the first 100 years, Faust was the most widely performed opera on the stage. It was the very first opera the Metropolitan Opera presented in its opening season in 1883 in New York City. The legend of Faust is hundreds of years old, and it's been handed down through many different traditions and histories. One of the oldest versions dates from the 6th century and centers on a man named Theophilus who made a deal with the devil to become a bishop. In Polish folklore, there's a late 16th century tale of a Krakow man who sold his soul to the devil in exchange for magical powers in order to raise the ghost of the dead queen. In these legends, he was carried off by the devil but dropped on the moon, where he continues to live to this day. But the Faust tales that we know best, and the one which inspired the opera, come from stories about a real person named Johann Georg Faust, commonly believed to have been born around 1480. He was said by some to be a traveling scholar. Others say that he was an astrologer, an alchemist, and a magician. And still other reports have him listed as a conman and a drifter. Um, and reports of his death all vary as well, but indicate some kind of mysterious circumstance. Stories of his life, which always include his reported pact with the devil, became the foundation of Christopher Marlowe's play, The Tragical History of the Life and Death of Dr. Faustus, which had its first London performance around 1592. Now, the best known and most influential interpretation of this legend, as Arthur has already mentioned, was written by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, the German poet, playwright, novelist, and scientist, who is often touted as the greatest and most influential writer in the German language. His dramatic poem, Faust, was published in two parts, in 1808 and 1831, in a project that took him 60 years to complete. His was also the version which established the character of Marguerite, also known as Gretchen. The story of Faust has been widely interpreted in works of fiction, poetry, drama, ballet, film, visual arts, and of course in music. While Goethe's Faust has been called the definitive Faust, there are so many variations on the story's theme. We might not even realize that some of our favorite works of art allude to this old tale. Uh, consider favorites like The Sorcerer's Apprentice, The Picture of Dorian Gray, The Devil and Daniel Webster, the musical Damn Yankees, Little Shop of Horrors, all of which have central elements of a Faustian deal. 
Writer Benjamin Rahm also urges us to consider how these themes play out in our own lives, noting in an article from 2017 that our challenge today is that to some extent, we are all in a Faustian bind. The legend warns us to be wary of the cult of ego, the seductions of fame, and the celebration of power. These are hollow triumphs and short-lived. After all, as Kierkegaard reminds us, every notable historical era will have its own Faust. That's exactly what we're looking at now with Detroit Opera's production. Uh, director Liliana Blaine Cruz uh, has set our Faust in 2022 in modern day. And Arthur, I'm wondering if you can take us through the plot of that Faust. Most certainly. Faust is an aging tech mogul who, after spending decades of his life and career, realizes his achievements ring hollow. He mourns his youth and the chances at life fulfilled with love. Cursing tech and faith, Faust attempts suicide twice. Uh, Each time he's about to ingest pills and alcohol, he hears a choir outside his window and he sets the pills back down on the table. Faust, now desperate, seeks guidance from the devil, and moments later, the messenger of the devil, Mephistopheles, appears. Faust tells him of his desires of youth and love. Mephistopheles proposes to Faust that he can relive his youth, but only if he forfeits his soul. Faust struggles with the decision, but Mephistopheles tempts him further by showing him a vision of the beautiful Marguerite, who bartends at the local bar. Faust writes a contract with Mephistopheles, Faust takes a pill and transforms into a young man. The two venture out on the town in search of Marguerite. So, Arthur, um, how many Fausts will this make for you? How many versions of Faust? How many times have you seen it? Ooh, I think for me, this is probably my fourth or uh, fifth. And uh, But I remember so clearly uh, after my first production, I had read uh, that Faust had an unlikely supporter on this side of the pond, Uh, in no less personage than uh, the president of the United States. Uh, It turns out Abraham Lincoln had written to friends that he loved the opera Faust. Uh, The German opera company had come through D.C., uh, and he and Mary Todd Lincoln caught a performance of Faust uh, in March of 1865. Uh, But sadly, uh, just 28 days later, uh, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. A little bit of history there. Most indeed, most indeed. Uh, And uh, is this your first Faust or have you seen Faust before? Is this your first production? This will be my second. I I saw it the last time it was done at the Opera House. And so I'm excited to see a new setting. And I'm really excited um, about the inclusion of the dialogue. This um, kind of what we've been a little bit referring to as the composer's cut of uh, of this opera with some, um, you know, some music that we might not be used to hearing. And certainly this, uh, you know, these scenes, this this inclusion of dialogue kind of like um, like Carmen or like flute, you know, there's precedent for it, but we don't hear it a lot. So I'm really excited to hear it uh, in this production. Yeah, I feel like we're going back to the opera comique or something. Exactly. I've not seen this production with the dialogue, so I am very uh, most anxious and curious to see it myself. Absolutely. I, I'm really curious to see how it colors um, the characters, how um, the inclusion or, um, you know, sort of removal of some of the music that we might be used to hearing um, gives us just a different perspective on this tale and who these folks are. And I know that's something we want to talk about with our guests. So uh, maybe actually that sets us up perfectly to introduce him. Indeed, we are so pleased to welcome our special guest to this podcast. Uh, this artist is Nigerian-American baritone uh, who has brought his artistry to such companies as the Los Angeles Opera, Opera San Jose, the Long Beach Opera, Utah Opera, the LA Philharmonic, as well as many more. Uh, he has not only distinguished himself in the standard baritone roles of Escamillo and Carmen, or Marcello and Bohem, or Sharpless and Butterfly, uh, but he has taken part 
in six world premieres of new works, new operas, uh, which is just astounding to me. Uh, in December of 2018, uh, he combined his love for classical opera and hip hop and created a new genre, hip hopera, in a viral video seeing the Largo from the Barber of Seville, uh, which gained over 10 million views and was featured on time.com. Uh, he is also a social media influencer, uh, bearing down on nearly 1 million followers. Uh, he is making his debut with Detroit Opera in the role of Valentin in Gounod's Faust, which opens, as I mentioned earlier, uh, November 12th. We want to welcome Mr. Babatunde, Akim Baboye. We are thrilled you are here. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you know, so I wanted to start, you've shared before that you came to opera, that your very first opera experience was when you were in an opera, um, in a college production of The Marriage of Figaro. Um, and I wanted to ask you, what was it like to come to this art form kind of sight unseen? Did you know right away within that process that this was going to be a new path for you? I think I sus after the first bow. I think that's when I got the got a suspicion that this was gonna this was gonna keep going because because it feels good. <laughs> yeah, that felt good. I um so the first opera I did was uh, Leno de Figaro, and I remember everything being almost overwhelming, but pleasantly overwhelming because especially with that opera, there were a lot of familiar earworms that I've heard over uh, the first time I heard the orchestra, you know, play the overture. I lost it with excitement. Well, I kept it very reserved because I didn't want my colleagues around to know how new I was to opera, even though in retrospect, I think they all knew and I, I wasn't fooling anyone. But um, the, the the sound of the orchestra live was just, it was epic because that was my first time hearing an orchestra live was from the pit when I was on stage. Um, and once I had all the pieces, because watching it get pieced together slowly was the most fascinating part to me. Watching, oh, there was a costume department that's separate. And it's like, oh, that's how they do, oh, the wigs and costumes, they're separate. I thought it was just one lady who does everything for everyone. Um, and then uh, the rehearsal process, the coachings, it was very much what I imagine Harry Potter's first day at Hogwarts was. Uh, everything was new and it was so exciting and so magical and everyone had all these skills and knowledge and, and it was, it was, and I, I knew I had some talent because I wouldn't be on that stage, but it was uh, it, it still felt like um, it's it, it still felt pleasantly overwhelming. <laughs> I like that pleasantly overwhelming. It's great. You know, you you say that you're, the, hearing that orchestra was a big moment for you, and I have the pleasure to work in education and to bring young people to the opera house. Um, and it's true that when you do hear that those crash of the overture notes, it can definitely be life changing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's for someone who hasn't come to opera, the idea of doing this two and a half hour piece in a language that I don't speak fluently, it for, initially seems almost obscenely far fetched. And going through the process and watching the um, the sausage may, uh, get made, essentially, brings it to where it almost felt, uh, what's the word, not anticlimactic. But it felt, it felt like secretly powerful in a way. Like I had accumulated all of this ability, skill, and knowledge and know-how just to perform this role and present it on stage. And then, and then the reception. I, yeah, I think I think that was I got hooked pretty quickly after that because it was really the accumulation of new skills and performing it in a way that was so well received. Um, I. I <laughs> 
I, I, that's hard to beat. I mean, it's, it's just a great, great, great feeling. Baba Tunde, uh, you know, I mentioned in your intro uh, all the traditional operatic roles you've done, but you've also been involved, as I mentioned, uh, six world premieres. That's certainly got to be a record uh, for one artist. Uh, are there specific challenges moving between these two worlds? Yeah, yes, actually they are. Um, traditional operas are very well known. They're very, a lot of the melodies, or especially within the opera industry, uh, a lot of the melodies are familiar. The, the, the rules, the way so much about the opera is familiar. With newer operas, with these world premieres, um, the, a lot of what I think is happening in the, the new opera space is we're still trying to figure out what new opera is going to be. What, is, what the new sound is. And so it feels very, very experimental, even outside of exper officially experimental music. And so with that, a lot of what you're used to in opera, with whether it's how the progression of the music or the relationships between the characters, or even just the rehearsal process, it's all very, very different. Uh, with living composers, will you know they're also artists so they may come in the next day and it's like forget that entire aria <laughs> this is your new aria and now you and those adjustments have to and working in that space um it's just it, it comes with the comes with the territory so you get used to working with the composer there for the rehearsals and um the upside of that which so the one thing i think i do prefer with the newer operas is i'll, I'll put it this way i feel like with traditional operas very often um one of the goals, one of the little goals we have as singers is to kind of, uh, I don't want to say replicate, but as accurately as we can emulate another great singer that we've heard. And so whether that was the original person that did the role and now some of their little uh, flourishes are now performance practice, uh, what's great about new operas is I get to set that rule. I get to, uh, when I'm doing a role for the very first time, I can tell the composer, that feels a little unnatural for me vocally, especially with my emotion at that time. Can we shorten the interval or something and have that dialogue and it makes sense? And getting to be a part of the creative process, that's something I experience in the world premieres more. It feels much, in that space, it feels more creative in the sense of starting from scratch as opposed to with traditional opera where we're trying to recreate as accurately as we can, which is a different skill set. And so... Yeah, that's that's the experience between the two. I mentioned earlier also in the intro um, uh, about your social media presence. I've been following you on TikTok for at least a, a year or so, uh, but you are a social media giant. Uh, when you started making your videos, were you intentionally carving out this path as an influencer or uh, with this viral reach? Or has this all been kind of a surprise to you as this, as this happened? It's one surprise following another, following another. Um, the, the, I never intended to be, I was one of those people that made fun of influencers. And so I made a video that you mentioned of me singing in the car, I just put my phone up and I thought it was pretty cool. So I posted it, I, I posted on my personal Facebook, not even my artist professional Facebook. And it spread like wildfire, went out of my network to the point where it started to come back into my network from outside, meaning non-opera people were sharing it to all their opera friends and they were saying, my friends are sharing. So it went viral and I realized like, okay, this this is fun. I guess I, I want to keep doing it. And so from doing that one video, people asked me to make more of those music things. And so I was like, I made that and they liked it. They said they wanted an album. And so I made, so that led me to that next step of making that. 
So I made like a three track EP and then they said they want a full album. So then I was like, okay, that's going to take time and, uh, and money. In the meantime, I don't want to lose all these new followers I got from being viral because when this full album comes, you guys ask for this. I don't want you guys to take off by the time it's done. So I was trying to figure out a way to keep them entertained and here, like on my page while I was working on the album. So I was just trying to put something on social media and I didn't know how to do social media, quote unquote, but I wanted to put something just to keep them entertained and keep them there. And what I would do is just put something that I thought was entertaining or funny or interesting. And then I would accidentally, I would put a video that would go viral. And another one that I just kind of tossed up there just to keep people busy went, would go viral as well. Then I realized I kind of had a knack for it. And then next thing I know, I was, <laughs> I, I, was, I, had, I was spending more time with the content creation than I was uh, making the album. Uh, and so when the pandemic hit, when an opera kind of went to a slow to a still, it gave me the permission. I'm going to be honest. It gave me the permission to really throw myself into the content creation and say, okay, you can commit to this. Let's see if you can really make this a thing. And so I started devoting a little more of my energy and attention to it. And um, it's been one of the best things I think I've done for myself. Uh, it, outside of the, the, the stuff that people see, just uh, having a community of people that feel and think the same way as you is incredibly nurturing, healing, validating. As an artist, it's given me a place to, to work out some of my own kinks. For instance, as many classical musicians have, uh, we have this relationship with perfectionism that sometimes can be inhibiting. Social media, because um, where things are now, there's so much more uh, appreciation for the mundane than the highlight reels. It's, it's encouraged me to allow myself to set a goal of being pretty good and not perfect which has been has felt so much better because having a standard goal of perfection uh, is it almost feels it, it feels unhealthy because it's not actually achievable in the in the way we we like to think of it where it's perfect and it can never be there's no room for improvement whereas i feel like pretty good slash imperfection is a lot more interesting and may appeal less to person A, but person B is going to be on fire about it. And so I've, I've learned to enjoy that space. Excellent. And I think it's made me a better artist. Yeah. I was just going to say, one of the things I was dying to know is how did you come up with your aesthetic? You know, the black, the tux with the teacup and you're stirring the, the honey or whatever it is. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, once again, um, well, no, that was a little more deliberate. I knew that I wanted to... To, that opera was going to be part of my platform on in social media. And I wanted to be recognizable in that way because I, I found that it was helpful to kind of have something visually that helps them make the connection with me and opera. And so I, tr I, I, I honestly, I, I tried a bunch of different tuxedo combinations of just wearing a vest and trying to keep it casual, but also, and strangely enough, I found that wearing the tails and... Uh, wearing the black tie as opposed to the PK and so on. It hit the spot, both for me and for my followers. They see it and something immediately clicks like, okay, classical music, they think like they're thinking China, they're thinking lace, they're thinking big red curtains, they're thinking luxury, uh, Versailles, that time period. For some reason, it's a wide range of things that once they see that tuxedo, they're just like classy. And for me, knowing that because I... I <sighs> 
I'm not actually wearing the proper combination that you would wear with the uh, the tuxedo combination. And I know that. And for me, it's a little bit. Um, it feels like wearing sneakers with with like a, a gown or something. And I and I kind of like that. And so I settled. So I finally settled there. The reaction on that video was great. And then later on, I did something that I want. I needed a teacup for specifically. And a lot of people would come say, oh, my gosh, I love that teacup and the, the aesthetic with you and that suit and the teacup. And and I thought, like, OK, I'll try this for a couple more videos. And then so now I'm at the point it's like, how can I fit my teacup and my tuxedo into this video? How can I make it work? How can I make it apply? <laughs> yeah. And so, but yeah, it's become a it's become a thing. I love that. That's so funny. You know, when you were talking about, um, you know, your work in this in this hip hop space, sort of giving you a new perspective on um, perfectionism, I think that's so interesting. Um, and I wanted to ask you to go a little bit further than that in talking about that work. You know, I think um, certainly my experience with the term hip hopper has been a little bit like culturally episodic, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. You know, my generation, we came up with Beyonce's Carmen a hip hopera. And I think that the Fugees had mm -hmm. a single with that title. But you are really the person who is giving, you know, life and form to you know to what this is what has it been like to pioneer this space and this fusion of styles both in your practice as an artist but also in you know the reaction and impact what has that been like for you it's uh it's definitely been a, a ride a ride um because one i didn't full disclosure i really did not like the phrase the the term hip opera in the beginning it just didn't, something about it felt almost a little cheesy. Like it's opera, but it's hip. And I didn't, I didn't like that. It felt a little, mm. but I did have, uh, and combined with that, I had the other relationship, the Fuji song, um, the, the Beyonce's Carmen. And uh, the first, the, the first exposure to that word I ever got was this album by this LA rapper called Volume 10. And he was just a loud guy, and so Volume 10 was his name. And so his first album, or his second one, was called Hip Opera, because hip hop, but it was loud opera. And um, that was my, so that was my first exposure. And so it felt like I was kind of like throwing my hat in with like greats like Beyonce and Volume 10, who's that, the one of the big singles on that was redone by uh, Rage Against the Machine and was really popular for years. Um, but it's like, uh, I don't, I don't feel like that, that's me. Um, but I, I couldn't run away from it. It was just such an obvious term with like mixing hip hop and opera. So I embraced it and I guess people do this and this is a thing that happens, but when I guess you breathe your own life into something, it feels, oh, I guess that's what having a child is like, <laughs> is like, <laughs> it, it feels like I've created this thing that I want to like keep safe and, and protect and give the best chance and give the healthiest like environment, which I think is what has helped me um, decide what my platforms are, essentially what I, what my main points are talking about on social media. I talk about, uh, you know, old racial issues with opera, within the opera industry and within operas. I talk about mental health often and just all the things I think I would want, um, I guess this, this, hip hop baby to the kind of healthy environment I would want it to grow up in. I love what you say about creating this healthy environment that it's not just focusing on like the music itself or the production itself, but how are you, how are you influencing a larger, a larger sphere through this work? I think that's incredible. 
So, well, Papa Tunde, you had uh, mentioned uh, previously, uh, and I, of course, watching your TikTok videos, you have really been at the forefront of calling out issues of race and access in our business. And I'm just wondering, what has been the impact of addressing this head on, both uh, positive and negatively? Well, both positive and negatively, I would say opera has been a certain way for a long time. And it's... And we like opera that way because a lot of what we do now is was to preserve the way it's been. And so with the talk of doing things differently, I think for anyone, once you're introduced change to something that they love or just have been very familiar with, it's it can be a little threatening, um, especially if you've been successful or been uh, if you've done well in the way things have been. So to now ask, to now raise the question or the conversation that maybe the things should change, almost like threatens your idea of well-being or and and so on. So I've <laughs> I've gotten some surprising backlash individually from some um, so from some of my colleagues who are who've been in the game longer uh, and who are more success, successful and established than me, which was actually very surprising in the beginning. So I get a few of those. People complaining like, oh, you know, you're just trying to you're trying to mess up opera or something like that. But I get this overwhelming like onslaught of people saying that they feel so validated and heard and like they've had these same concerns. But because it's been the norm, you know, they, they didn't even feel like they could say like, oh, Madam Butterfly makes me a little uncomfortable. Um, they, they didn't feel like they had a, the permission to even think that to themselves. And so. Part of what what has motivated me to continue to be vocal is just knowing that uh, I I'm providing something that I wanted for myself, just some validation, someone else to say, yeah, this is a little weird, but we're gonna do it this way anyway, or we're gonna or we're gonna just overlook it. And it's like okay, I'm fine, like just doing the performance. If okay, I just don't want to just so talking about these issues have. Um, I think has given some people some validation in in their feelings about it. And I found it's given some people permission to do whatever they need to do to take care of themselves, to know that they are not wrong for feeling uncomfortable with this subject matter just because it's been written in a score. And then if they for themselves feel like I don't want to keep doing this role, then they can step away from it. And if it's less unhealthy for someone else, that they can step in that role. So I, for individually, I think I've given some voices to some people and I've made some people nervous. And overall, I know that there's, I see a shift uh, in the culture opera and what is normal. And I like to think that I'm, I'm very much adding my voice to it. And I'm grateful for the opportunity and the platform to do so because I've someone pointed out to me a lot too long ago that there are not a lot of other opera singers with the amount of followers I have, but more so um, there are not a lot of opera singers who are speaking to the non-opera world with the same amount of volume that I am, and I feel almost an obligation to, I guess, keep it real, and so essentially I don't want to. It's not that I intend to disparage opera. But I definitely want to shine a light on all the areas of opera. That way, if there's something that we're not proud of, maybe we'll actually like do something different about it. 
Outstanding. Now, you're coming to Detroit in this new and exciting production of Faust, the uh, composer's cut, as some have been calling it, uh, which, uh, what has been your relationship with the Faustian tale at this point, and uh, uh, what can you tell us about taking up this role of Valentine for the first time? My mother had, a, she had one bookshelf, I remember when I was little, and it was lying... <laughs> Well, that's my experience. Um, it was lined with a bunch of Daniel Steele books and one Goethe book. And I remember the Goethe book like standing out and really. So I would pick it up and read it every now and then because I was like, why is it on there? It was just so like. And so that was my first exposure to the deal with the devil, if you will. Um, <laughs> I was too young to really understand it all. But I it's it's a tale I'm I'm very familiar with and it's different, different versions. So. I'm grateful for that in the in this approach because with Faust, there's I know Faust, or I thought I did until coming to this. And what I've uh, what what I've enjoyed about this process is it's kind of giving give it's forced me to start from scratch, if you will, to kind of let go of what I think what it is because with doing this piece, a lot of the character is already informed in the music. And so when you take some music parts out, for me, the whole story of the character is now different. Um, you know, without, if the character Valentin sings a, a song of like a century protection devotion for his sister by himself and has that moment, he's a different kind of guy than the kind of guy who says like, hey, isn't my sister great? Like, don't you guys like my sister? I love her. It's a different character. And so those little shifts for me, inform the entire character. And if one character is a different guy, then the story is a different story. And so it really gives me permission to make the opera new again. I love that. So this production of Faust also includes scenes with spoken dialogue, which has not been typical of this opera. Um, I want to ask what it's been like to prepare spoken French as opposed to the sung language. Um, and what is it like to move between those two modes of expression, speaking and singing, uh, over the course of the same performance? It, uh, it's been fun. It's been a welcome challenge because there, as an opera singer, we don't get a lot of opportunities to work with dialogue. And a lot of our training in the language and in the diction of the language has been for the purposes of singing. And fortunately, um, I, fortunately, a lot of us have had, uh, have heard these languages spoken more than we, well, probably not more than we've heard it sing for us opera singers. But, um, the, challenge or the welcome challenge for me i enjoy the new especially if i know that it can be done uh i've learned i've enjoyed learning essentially different diction rules for interacting with french just even if it's as simple as the different ways you would pronounce the r when sung as opposed to spoken and the, the my favorite part about it is learning the cultural inflections of the language for like in English, I could ask a question without even actually using words. I can go, no, 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 no. And you know that was a question. But those same inflections don't happen in French. And so now on top of learning the words and the character and like actual culturally what I'm actually saying, delivering it like a French person would deliver disgust. Because disgust from American sounds very different from a French and I want it to be French. So that, so that process of learning as well has been very very fun because it's it's it almost crystallizes where you get a few pieces of how it goes and then you, the rest just kind of form on its own and you 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 so watching that or like being a part of that happen is 
feels good. Uh, as far as going back and forth, it's that has been it's been a fun game of remembering because we're speaking French, but it's still theater spoken French, and so remembering that it's kind of like singing but not singing, and kind of doing the whole patting the head, rubbing the tummy dance of that has been has been fun. I had a question, uh, another question about Faust. Uh, so in the original version, of course, Guno did not write your big aria that, uh, that Valentina always sings, uh, but you picked up a, a duet with uh, your sister Marguerite, wondering, do we learn anything different or learn something new about Valentina than maybe in, in this particular version by doing the duet and not doing the, the aria that you talked about? That, so that is the biggest shift in Valentin for me is the, the switch of those two roles because, like I said, um, it's it color. I think it colors the delivery of every other line differently um, because it's <laughs> we talk about the character, but the character of the character. It's a certain kind of guy. You know, when you get your like your friends alone and they talk a certain way, you know, you can make a list of the kind of things they're capable of and not capable of. So when Valentin is uh, the 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 kind of guy that has like the solemn prayer to himself, praying for his sister, is a very different guy than the kind of guy who essentially says like, like, is my sister hot? To like a bunch of soldiers, um, and so that was a little crude way of putting that. But um, essentially, I think this Valentine, this production is a lot more. I he feels a lot more um, when I say passionate uh less reserved and much more um I, when i say performance passionate if you like it's just a lot more to act up in public in front of other people and and i, I that feels like the kind of guy he is like not so like he may feel that way but he's going to feel it more if other people are around and so and it's not that it's not true but but he leans into it a little more so if there's there's that little like eh for him, at least that's the way I'm translating for in my mind. I'm trying and I'm put it into that character where you'll like him. Asterix. <laughs> I love that. And being able to sort of embody that performative aspect of him is probably its own challenge and, and joy and fun and like wink, at, you know, the audience and at yes. the other performance as well. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I love absolutely. that. I love that. Well, um, we're coming short on our time, but I wanted to thank you so much for joining us for this conversation, Babatunde, um, and just asking if there's any last things that um, you'd like to share about your work, about your time in Detroit, or this fantastic new production that we're going to be presenting. Not a whole lot else. I'm I'm excited to be a part of this production. Um, I've <laughs> I've been. I, this is one of my first times doing a higher baritone role, which is very exciting because it's much more in my voice type. Than the lower voices so uh i yeah i've never been to detroit before so doing and it's my first time doing faust first time being in detroit first time seeing this production of faust which for me feels a little full circle to my very first opera there's not a lot of operas that i'm seeing for the first time on stage anymore and this will kind of be another one and so i'm excited all the way around well, we can't wait to welcome you. And I love that idea that this is a full circle for you in some way. What a what a cool uh, way to approach it. Thank you so much for this conversation, for your time. It was a real pleasure to be able to speak with you today. Thank you. Thank you. You too. And thank you too to everyone listening to our glimpse into Detroit Opera's production of Faust. We hope to see you at the Detroit Opera House for this new production, which opens November 12th. 
and runs through November 20th. To purchase tickets to Faust or to find more information on the opera, visit our website at DetroitOpera.org. You can also connect with us on social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Special thanks to Jake Neer for his assistance in producing this podcast, and we'll see you at the opera. Yeah!